Well, we come to the end of our study of the Apostle Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth. It's actually not exactly his second letter. He, he actually wrote four letters that we know of to the church at Corinth. Two of them are lost to us. So uh, what we call 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter that we know about that he wrote. Uh, if you've been here through our series on 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians now, uh, you know that Paul's relationship with the church was a complicated one. So back in Acts chapter 18, we read that the Apostle Paul, having left his ministry in Athens, went to Corinth and spent time there, probably about 18 months, supporting himself by making tents while preaching about Jesus and ultimately pulling together a new church with the people that came to faith in him. Uh, based on details that we have in the book of Acts and then sort of external uh, confirmation from archaeology, we can be really confident that Paul was in Corinth from 51 to 52 AD. Uh, in 52 AD, probably late spring, early summer, Paul left the city. He went east to Ephesus in what is now modern-day Turkey, and that became the sort of headquarters for Paul's ministry for about three years. But it didn't end his relationship with the church at Corinth. So while Paul was in Ephesus, he wrote the first letter to the Corinthian Christians that included in it some warnings about associating with immoral people who were claiming to be Christians. So Paul refers to that letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 11. At some point, people from Chloe's household report back to Paul that the church in Corinth had descended into conflict and quarreling. We read about that in 1 Corinthians 1.11. And so it seems that Paul also received a letter from the church at Corinth. He mentions that letter in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. And that letter from the church to the apostle uh, seemed to put certain questions to him and, and pushed back on the, the content of that first letter that we don't, we don't have with us anymore. And it seems like that letter even questioned the apostle's authority, uh, wondering, who exactly are you to, to tell us what to think and do and believe? So Paul writes back to them with the second letter that we know about, the letter we call 1 Corinthians. And in that letter, he addresses some really serious issues in the church. There was bitter quarreling that had fractured the peace and fellowship of the church. There was a man in a sinful relationship with his father's wife. People are preaching that everyone should abstain from marital intimacy altogether if they want to be followers of the Lord. People are coming to the Lord's table and seemingly getting drunk. Christians in the church are suing one another in the public courts. They have questions about divorce, questions about food, questions about gender relationships, questions about how spiritual gifts ought to operate in the church. And so Paul is addressing all of those things in 1 Corinthians. We know after he sent that letter, Paul sent Timothy, his protege and, and trusted associate, to, to visit the church on his behalf and see how things were going there. And, and what Timothy discovered when he went to Corinth was a church in chaos. Paul's opponents had risen up in the church and were, were convincing the congregation to reject his leadership, and, and a significant part of the church had followed after them. Timothy brings this report back to Paul, and Paul in Ephesus decides he needs to go to Corinth right away to address these issues. That visit turned out to be a very painful one. And as we'll see in our passage for this morning from the end of 2 Corinthians, it, that visit was still a live issue with the church. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, he, he calls this trip, this second trip that he took to Corinth, 
a painful visit because what he discovered was that a large portion of the church that he had labored for so many months to see started and planted, this church that he had cared for and preached the gospel to, was now a large part of the congregation was in open rebellion against him and his authority. So Paul decided at that point it would be better to leave. Rather than stay and fight, rather than provoke an open conflict uh, with his opponents, he decided to endure the humiliation of leaving and, and once got back to Ephesus, he simply wrote another letter to the church. So this is the third letter that we know about. So there's the first one that we don't have. There's the second one that we call 1 Corinthians. There's another letter then that he writes in response to his painful visit. And, and he calls this third letter a severe letter. In 2 Corinthians 7, he calls it a tearful letter. He sends this letter to Corinth by his good friend Titus. That's also going to come up in our passage for this morning. And so Paul later meets up with Titus in Macedonia, and he hears how the church has responded to this third severe letter, rebuking them for the way they treated him and responded to him when he visited. And what he, what he found out from Titus was that most of the church had repented in response to his letter. Most of the church had, in fact, seen the error of their ways, but there was still a rebellious minority who were embracing these false teachers in the church and, and who were setting themselves up as opponents of Paul. It's in that light that Paul writes his fourth letter to the church at Corinth, the letter that we call 2 Corinthians, the letter that we've been studying for some months now. And, and part of Paul's point in writing this letter is to instruct the repentant Christians, those who had sort of turned back to Paul in his ministry in light of his severe letter, to instruct them about how to relate to the other folks in the church. And Paul also wants to call those other folks, that sort of holdout minority of rebellious people, to repentance. And so as Paul concludes his letter in our passage for this morning, that is very much on his mind. He wants very much for these holdouts to, to return uh, to the faith, to return to embracing his ministry. Now, if you remember when we left off in chapter 12, verse 10, Paul has been holding out for the church his credentials. He's been defending himself against what he sarcastically calls the super apostles, those in Corinth who were trashing him in his ministry. Uh, these opponents of Paul were were pointing to Paul's lack of personal charisma. They were, they were pointing to his lack of rhetorical skill. They were, they were mocking his constant suffering. They were essentially telling the church, look, you don't have to listen to this loser. He's a nobody. We saw back in chapter 11 that Paul regretted this whole exercise, that he had to lay out his credentials for the church, that he had to prove to them that he was a genuine minister of Christ, that he was worthy of their attention. He said they were forcing him to indulge in some, what he calls, foolishness, basically engaging in the same exercise that these super apostles engaged in, putting forward his credentials. He calls it commending himself to them. And so that's where our passage for this morning picks up. If you have a Bible open, I think you'll be helped. We'll be jumping around in the passage quite a bit. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 11 uh, and going down to verse 13, we read this. Paul says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. 
with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Right, you see something of a, a summary of what Paul's been driving at in the last chapter and a half or so. The Corinthians' willingness to entertain these accusations against and criticisms of Paul, it's forced his hand. He couldn't just sit back and let his beloved church be sort of taken over by these false apostles, these false teachers. And so he shouldn't have to engage in this foolishness, rolling out his credentials, boasting about his experiences, but they've really, they've left him no choice. He says there, they, they should have stood up for him. Right, when Paul made his painful visit, when he was publicly mocked and humiliated by his opponents, they should have come to his defense. But since they didn't, he had to defend his way of doing ministry. He had to defend his authority, his right to instruct the church. You see the summary of his case there in the middle of verse 11. He says, look, even though I'm nothing, even though my goal is not to exalt myself, my, my goal is to glorify Christ, I'm nothing. But he says, I'm not at all inferior to those guys. In verse 12, he reminds them that his time of ministry among them Right, that time that he spent in Corinth, he says, was attended by signs and wonders and mighty works that showed him to be a true apostle. So we don't know exactly what it is Paul's referring to there. So the book of Acts tells us a lot about Paul's visits to the different churches that he planted. But when it tells us about his time in Corinth, it doesn't mention any sort of specific powerful acts or mighty wonders. But we do know from his visits to other cities that, that Paul healed people that he cast out demons, that he even brought someone back to life. And so it appears that something like that, some of those signs were patiently worked in his time in Corinth. And so Paul asks rhetorically there in verse 13, look, how have you been shortchanged compared to any other church? How, how have you gotten less than any other church? Right, we can conclude that Paul did some of these things in, in other cities. He did them in Rome, we know. Right? In fact, Paul says, the only way I've treated you differently, I didn't do fewer works, fewer wonders, fewer miracles among you. The only thing that other churches got that you didn't get was the right to give me money. Paul says, the only way I've treated you differently is I didn't take any money from you. In verse 13, he says, the one thing I didn't do was burden you. He asks them sarcastically, please forgive me that terrible wrong. I'm sorry to have so badly injured you by not taking any money from you. There in verse 14, he continues to press his point. He says, here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? So Paul's ready to talk about his third upcoming planned visit to Corinth. 
The first was the time when Paul went there and spent 18 months or so planting the church. The second is that painful visit that he had to cut short. And the trip he's planning now will be his third. And he says that he's going to take the exact same approach on this trip. He's still not going to take any money from the people at Corinth. Even though he knows his enemies will use that fact against him. that They'll defame him for his unwillingness to take money. Uh, we've seen this before in the book of 2 Corinthians. Right, the way that a teacher in those days showed how important and how significant and how powerful he was by, was by attracting wealthy, important, rich, powerful clients. And so Paul's commitment to supporting himself by making tents, well, it was embarrassing. It was a sign that he was really not worthy of respect, that he was a person of no account. But Paul speaks so tenderly here. He says, look, when I come again, even though I know it's going to it's going to be grist for the mill, even though it's going to be fuel for the fire. He's like, I'm still not going to take any money from you. And he explains why there. In verse 14, the middle of verse 14, he says, look, I don't want your stuff. What I want is you. I mean, how, how beautiful is that? He says, I seek not what is yours, but you. He points out there at the end of the verse, uh, verse 14, look, kids don't save up to support their parents. Parents put something aside to support their kids. Paul sees himself as the church's spiritual father. And so he says, look, I'm not looking to take any money from you. In verse 15, he says, I will gladly spend and be spent for the sake of your souls. I can't help but think this is an appropriate passage to read on Mother's Day. Right, this, is, this is the heart posture of the, the mothers that I know, the mother that I had, the mother that I'm married to, the, the mother-in-law uh, that I have. Right? This is the heart of mothers for their children, right? How gladly spend and be spent for you. Take everything I have, whatever you need, Paul says. I don't want anything from you. I want you. He cares about their souls, in chapter 13, verse 9, he expresses something similar. He says, look, I'm happy to be weak, if that means you can be strong. Right? His love for the church is just sort of bleeding off the page here. Right? He doesn't want them for a second to think that he's a parasite, that he's looking to suck them dry. He says, no, just the opposite. He says, I won't take anything from you because I don't want you to have any doubt in your mind that I'm willing to give you everything. If Paul showed this kind of love to the church at Corinth, how do you think the church there should respond? Paul's question there in verse 15, it's heartbreaking. He says, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? Like, is, is love some zero-sum game where if I love you, that means you have to love me less? Right? Do, you, do you somehow withhold your love for me because I've loved you so greatly? It does seem that the church there has misunderstood his love. They, they thought that his refusal to take anything from them was too good to be true. That it meant that it, it, it was a scam. It was, it was a con. He had some sort of long game he was playing. There in verse 16, it seems that some accused him of being crafty, of, of taking them by deceit. Or you know that, that old strategy where you, you don't take any money from people, but you support yourself and give everything to them, but you're really stealing from them, you know, or something, I guess, right? 
They're like, there must be some angle here. And so Paul asks in verse 17, have I, have I somehow cheated you? Have the people that I've sent to you, have they cheated you? Remember, he sent that severe letter, that third letter by Titus and by another brother that Paul doesn't name. And so in verse 18, he says, look, did, did Titus rip you off when he came to you? Right? It seems that no one was accusing Titus of anything uh, unseemly. Paul points out, look, I'm only doing, I've only done the same things Titus did. Right? We're acting in the same spirit. Right, the point is clear. Paul had done nothing wrong in his approach to the church there. All he had done was love them and pour himself out for them. As such, they should have loved him back. They should have defended him and his ministry against his critics. From that point on, Paul continues with some final instructions, some thoughts for the church. And I think what we'll see as we think through the rest of chapter 13 and a bit of the end of chapter 12 is that it really is a good summary of many of the themes, many of the sort of big-ticket items we've seen in this letter. Uh, Paul is sort of getting it all back in one last time, reminding them of the things he's told them. And so as we think through the rest of this passage, I want to just point out to you three ideas that Paul seems to want to emphasize, really re-emphasize, on his way out of this letter. Uh, first, I think we're, we'll see the purpose of Paul's authority. I'm going to spend a bit more time on this, not because it's necessarily the most important thing, but because it kind of takes up the most real estate in this section. So the purpose of Paul's authority, then the pattern of Paul's ministry, and then finally, the need to embrace the truth of Christ personally. So first, the purpose of Paul's authority, the pattern, second, of Paul's ministry, and then the need for us to embrace the truth of Christ personally. So first, let's look at the, what Paul says about the purpose of his authority. If you look there in chapter 13, starting in verse 6, going down to verse 10, it says this. Paul says, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have, meet the, to, to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not be severe in my use of, of the authority the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. It seems here that Paul is addressing that sort of that holdout group in the church, those who are tempted still to side with the super apostles. He says there, your restoration is what I pray for. He wants them to know that he, he loves them. He wants something for them and from them. He, he begins there by saying that he hopes that these Corinthians will discover that he and his ministry have not failed to meet the test. As we'll see in a little bit, the test here in context is Paul basically saying, look, look closely at my life and ministry. You're going to find that I'm the real deal, right? I am a true apostle. Remember how Paul introduces himself at the beginning of the letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the will of God, right? Paul says, look closely, test me, test my ministry, and see if that doesn't prove to be true. I am an apostle sent to you by Jesus, and so my claims on your attention my, my claim to have some authority in the church, it's not without merit. He says there in verse 7, he prays for them that they would do what is right. 
And he, he kind of gets confusing there, but it seems like what, he, what Paul's saying is that he, he's praying that they would do what is right, not because that would reflect well on him, but because he genuinely wants them to do what's pleasing to the Lord. There in verse 8, he reminds them, look, my only allegiance is to the truth. That's what I care about, Paul says. I'm not worried about my reputation. I'm not worried about whether I'm well understood. There in verse 10, he explains why it is he's writing to them. He says he's writing now from a distance so that when he comes to them, when he's actually present with them, he doesn't have to use his authority severely. Paul's basically saying, look, I'm trying to get this out of the way. Let's get this straightened out now so that when I come, we don't have to deal with all this unpleasantness. Paul says something that's really important here. He says that his authority has been given to him by the Lord, not primarily for tearing down, but he says there that it's for building up. The end of verse 10, he says, so when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. What does he mean by that? Well, it seems like he's saying when he comes to Corinth, he doesn't want to have to spend his time. He doesn't want to have to invest his authority in tearing a bunch of stuff down. He doesn't want to find them in a a state of spiritual chaos and disarray, right, and have to do a bunch of demo work before he can begin to build. He describes what that might look like back in chapter 12, starting in verse 20. He says, for I fear that perhaps when I come, when he makes this third visit, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. And I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Remember, this is a world without email, without texts or direct messages. So when Paul gets on a boat and he heads on a long journey to Corinth, he really can't be 100% sure of what he's going to find when he arrives. What he really dreads is the idea of pulling into Corinth and finding the church there in shambles. He says, look, I I really hope that I'm not going to be humbled again, that I'm not going to have to endure attacks and humiliation from my opponents like last time. Right? Most of the church had repented in light of the severe letter, but he was concerned that he would still find unrepentant people there and that the church will have descended into acrimony and slander. And so Paul's addressing this sort of like holdout faction and saying, look, your restoration, your repentance is what I want. What I don't want to do is show up and find that you're still unrepentant. You're still stuck in your sin. Paul knows that if he shows up and the church is in that kind of chaos... He's going to need to use his authority to tear down, to pass judgment on those who are unrepentant, to pass judgment on those who are still rejecting the gospel that he's been sent to proclaim. So he says there at the beginning of chapter 13, he says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's the standard laid out in the Old Testament law. He says, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. So when Paul made that painful second visit, he decided to leave Corinth rather than stay and provoke a confrontation 
with the rebellious faction in the church. But now he knows that if he comes to Corinth, there, there will be no other option. If he finds indisputable evidence of immorality and rebellion running wild, for the sake of the church, he says, I'm going to need to use my authority to pass judgment. I won't be able to spare you. It's not perfectly clear what Paul means by passing judgment there. We know from 1 Corinthians that some of the church members were experiencing judgment for their behavior at the Lord's table. Paul says some of them were weak and ill and even dying because of their sin. We know from Acts chapter 5 that Ananias and Sapphira died because of their deceitful lying to the Holy Spirit. Maybe Paul foresees something like that happening if he comes to the church and, and finds them in disarray. He might just mean excommunication, as he talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that he would have to come and force the issue and expel his opponents from the church. But either way, Paul is clearly reluctant to do that. He doesn't want to have to spend his God-given authority on tearing down sin and rebellion. Instead, what he wants to do is use his authority to build the church up. So there in chapter 12, verse 19, he says this, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. Right, we've seen so many times in 2 Corinthians that Paul is ultimately only concerned with the sight of God. Right, when, you're, when you're opposed by other people, when you're being slandered, right, when you're being uh, spoken against in unfair terms, the only thing you have is your conscience before the Lord, that you fear him and not man. Paul ultimately isn't really worried about the Corinthians and their opinion of him. What he really wants is for them to embrace the truth of his message for their sake. He says, before God, I, I know that, like, look, I'm committed to the truth. Before God, I've only proclaimed the message of Christ. What he wants is for them to embrace that message for their sake. He knows he's been faithful to the truth. He knows that God has seen his commitment to the edification, the upbuilding of the church. At the very end of the letter, Paul gives the congregation there a positive build, a vision of what it is that he's trying to build up among them. What is it that he's using his authority to try and see manifested in their midst? This is a great picture of what the Lord would build in that congregation and in our congregation as well. So look there in verse 11 of chapter 13. Paul says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. What a beautiful picture. What a great summary of, of everything Paul's been pushing towards in 2 Corinthians. Remember back at the very beginning of the book, Paul told the church about how God had, had comforted uh, him, right? Allowing the, the comfort uh, of the, uh, allowing him to comfort the Corinthians. Right now he tells the church, comfort one another, right? They've been racked with conflict and turmoil. He tells them, rejoice, be restored to one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. He says, look, the saints, the believers in other churches, the saints, all the saints greet you. Right? You are part of this much greater community. So Paul says, look, you are greeted ones, right? The saints greet you, so greet one another. 
with a holy kiss, a sign of respect and affection. In the, the, the benediction there in verse 14, the very end, he, he bids them, he wishes for them to experience the blessings of the Trinity in their life together. He, he wishes the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to them. The love of God, God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. When you step back and you survey the larger picture, uh, what you see, I think, is that the life of a Christian congregation, like the one in Corinth, and, and like ours, is meant to be shaped by a series of influences. Right? Paul calls the church to holiness. Right? He, wants them, he wants to find them repentant. He, he wants them to reject false teachers. He wants them to reject any hint of sexual immorality. He, he calls them to holiness. He calls them to unity. Right? Greet one another in love. Live in peace. Put away slander. Put away rancor and gossip. And those things that Paul is calling the church to sort of live out in its life together, those aren't just random things. Paul's not just like, what would be nice to see in the church at Corinth these days? How about unity? How about holiness? No, Paul's calling the church to those things. He's calling us to those things because that's a manifestation of the life of God in their midst. Right there in chapter 13, verse 11, he says the, the God of love and peace will be with them. There in verse 14, he, he bids them the grace of Jesus, right? That blessing and favor that comes to us from the cross where Jesus died for us even though we didn't deserve it. He bids them the love of the Father, right? The love that God showed in sending his son to die for us so that we could be part of God's family. He wants them to experience the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. For them to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit and to have their relationships with one another defined by the Holy Spirit, formed and guided by the Holy Spirit. What Paul's calling the church to here is nothing less than a visible display of the love and character of their God. Paul says that his authority as an apostle was given for that purpose, to strive to sacrifice, to be spent, to see this built up in the church. This was the point of Paul's authority and his ministry, to see something of the life of God formed in these people. I think it's a good reminder for us, brothers and sisters, one last time before we leave this letter, that this is the larger purpose of Christian authority. Whether that's authority exercised in the church as an elder or it's authority exercised in the home as a husband or a parent, if you occupy some role of God-given authority, this, in the big picture, is what you're striving towards. It's not building something for yourself. It's certainly never pursuing your own personal gain at the expense of the people you're leading. Right? That's, that's what the Corinthians were tempted to think of Paul. Right? But before the Lord, that. We, we know it wasn't true, right? We know that Paul was willing to spend and be spent for them, right? Christian authority, Christian leadership is doing everything possible, working, praying, pleading, modeling, sacrificing to see the life of God built up in the people that you serve, to see them experiencing and living out God's love in their lives, I think it's also a helpful reminder of the way that we ought to respond to good authority in our lives. 
We live in an age that is suspicious, deeply suspicious, cynical about authority. But I'm weirdly encouraged that it's nothing new. Look at how the Corinthians were suspicious and cynical about Paul's authority. We certainly shouldn't allow authority to be misused and abused. But Paul's call here is for the church, is for them to be shaped and built up by his authority, by his love, by his care, by his patient instruction and teaching. He wants them to respond to his sacrificial leadership by turning from their sin and rebellion and embracing the gospel message that he'd been sent to bring to them. I think that leads us actually pretty directly into our next two points. Right? If we see that the purpose of Paul's authority was to build up the church in godliness, in, in reflecting God's character and love, uh, let's move on now and see what, what this letter tells us, the conclusion this letter tells us about the pattern of, of Christian ministry, the pattern of Paul's ministry in particular. Again, this is nothing new to 2 Corinthians. This is something we've seen before. But Paul wants to circle back to it one last time before he leaves the letter. And honestly, it's so important and it's so counterintuitive and we're so likely to forget it that we can't hear it too often. Look there in chapter 13, starting in verse 3. Paul says, Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. So in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13, Paul warns the church if he finds them in disorder and rancor and immorality when he arrives, he's going to have to pass judgment on those who are in rebellion against him. In verse 2, he says, look, I'm not going to spare you this time like I did on my second visit, right? But he tells them, Right there, it's not going to be like that. I'm, I'm going to pass judgment. But the problem is the super apostles, the false teachers in Corinth, they weren't scared of Paul. They thought that he was weak. They thought that he was inarticulate. They thought it was kind of embarrassing how he insisted on supporting himself. He, he wasn't someone that you needed to worry about. And so Paul understands that it may be that his, his threat that he's not going to spare them this time, will fall on deaf ears. And so Paul calls out the issue there in verse 3. He says, look, if you want proof that Christ is speaking in me, that when I show up, it's going to be the real deal, he says, let me, let me show you my proof. What, what does evidence for the work of Christ in Paul's life and ministry look like? Right? Surely the Corinthians would acknowledge the authority of Jesus. Right there in verse 3, Jesus isn't weak in their midst, but is powerful among them. Right? So if Paul can show that he is ministering, that he's coming to them on the authority of Jesus, then he knows he's got something to work with. So there in verse 4, Paul says, well, what does Jesus look like then? What's the pattern of Jesus' earthly life and ministry? What what should we expect Christ-likeness to look like? Well, Paul says there in verse 4, he was crucified in weakness. The eternal Son of God, the inexpressibly glorious second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh. He assumed weakness, frailty, the limitations that you and I live with every day. And more than that, he gave up his life 
on the cross for us. He died there in shame, in the most humiliating and painful way imaginable, taking our sins upon himself, offering himself as a sacrifice, as a substitute for us. He was the man of sorrows for you and for me. In that moment, on the cross, no human being could have seemed lower, weaker, less powerful. Paul says, Christ was crucified in weakness. But, Paul says, it would be a mistake to take a a snapshot of one moment in time to see someone as weak and, and extrapolate that through their entire life and ministry because Christ, he says, was crucified in weakness but lives by the power of God. He's not dead and weak anymore. Paul tells us in verse 4, he lives by the power of God. Jesus was raised from the dead in glory and so weakness and shame is no longer the headline. And that is an amazing truth. Right, the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus. It's the heart of the Christian faith that he was crucified in weakness but raised from the dead in glory. It is the core of the message that Paul preached. That's actually not the point Paul's making here. Extraordinarily enough and very importantly for our purposes, what Paul says there in verse 4 is that the death and resurrection of Jesus, it's not just the thing that saves us, but it becomes the pattern of our life and ministry. It becomes the way that Jesus' followers must walk. Paul says that he is weak in Christ. That his sufferings, his personal limitations, those things that the Corinthian opponents are so good at pointing out, right? They, they had a whole portfolio. They had opposition research to the teeth on Paul. They could point out every failing, every weakness, every flaw. Paul says, look, that's actually not evidence that I'm someone of no account. That's proof that I'm sent to you by the crucified Lord Jesus. Right? That weakness, that's not a mistake. That's Christ-likeness. But he tells the Corinthians, look, don't misunderstand. He says, look, we are weak in him. When it comes to dealing with you, when it comes to putting the church in order when I arrive and passing judgment on anyone who hasn't repented, well, look, when it comes to that, the headline isn't going to be weakness. He says, yes, we are weak in him, but we are also fully alive in him, full of the power of God, he says, full of the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And so Paul is saying to them, look, don't dismiss my ministry just because it is attended by suffering, just because you can point to my troubles. Says that's simply the way of Jesus, crucified in weakness, raised in power. And brothers and sisters, before we leave 2 Corinthians, we just need to remember that it's not just Jesus, it's not just Paul, but this is the pattern for our church. This is the pattern for our individual lives as well. Back in chapter 4, Paul talked about suffering that gives way to an eternal weight of glory. I remember what Peter wrote to the church in 1 Peter 4. He says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Brothers and sisters, that is the Christian life. That is ministry. 
in the church of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. It is not triumph and power and influence now. But oftentimes it's the appearance of weakness and suffering. It's humility and shame. It's a, it's a message that is folly to the world around us, that is fundamentally out of step with the world outside these doors. But the headline isn't weakness. The end of the story is triumph and glory. Right? It's weakness that brings us into eternity with the Lord Jesus. And brothers, realizing this, becoming accustomed to this pattern of life that seemed so sort of natural to Paul and so foreign to his Corinthian opponents, it should make us patient in times of trials. It should steal our spines when we're rejected by the world. It should calm our nerves when we see the gospel rejected by the world around us. It should give us hope when God calls us to, to suffer and to endure weakness. It should give us confidence that God can use us despite our limitations and despite what we feel that we lack. Of course he can. That's the pattern that the Lord Jesus himself has set for us. Suffering, weakness, gives way to glory and power. As Paul said earlier in chapter 12, God's power is made perfect in weakness. His glory shines most brightly through our brokenness. Resurrection power only comes after the weakness and suffering of the cross. So that brings us to our final thing to see here, and that is the need for us to embrace the truth of Christ personally. And this will be where we end. Look there in verse 5. Paul says to the church, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I think here in many ways is the point. This is the application of Paul's letter. Really all the letters that he's written to the church at Corinth. He has reluctantly defended his ministry and his authority. He's proclaimed the message of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. And here's where Paul is heading. Right? He's made it clear. I don't really care what you think about me per se. Right? I love you. I'm willing to endure your ridicule and your rejection. I'm confident in my standing before the Lord. All that Paul cares about in the end is that they prove to be in the faith. That they embrace the message of the cross that they take hold of the true gospel that Paul has been commissioned and authorized to proclaim to them. Paul wants them to embrace his ministry wholeheartedly because the gospel that he preaches of the crucified and risen Christ is the only one that can save them. He knows the super apostles can dazzle with brilliant rhetoric. They may have an, imp an impressive personal bearing, but he knows that they're only selling bread made out of sawdust. There's nothing there. There's nothing that can save the church in their message. And so Paul pleads with the members there, particularly the ones that were tempted still to side with the super apostles, look, examine yourselves. Put yourself to the test. See where you stand with respect to the Lord Jesus. Examine yourselves. We all do this all the time in life. We understand that we don't walk around with a perfectly accurate sense of ourselves at all times. So, for example, athletes, they will watch tape 
They will watch a video of their performance to get a more accurate sense of how they did. Right? They can't always tell. Was my, was my elbow too high there? Would I step too early? Right? There, are, there are things that are only visible upon later examination. Closer review. Employers conduct periodic performance reviews to make sure that everyone's on the right track, that everyone's pulling in the same direction. Teachers give exams from time to time, tests, to make sure that students are learning and absorbing the right material. So in the same way, it is profitable to, to stop and, and examine from time to time where we stand spiritually, where we stand with respect to our profession of faith in the Lord. Paul is writing to people who claim to be Christians, and he's saying, take a close look. Make sure that that's actually true. After all, in Matthew chapter 7, the Lord Jesus himself gives us a category for people that call him Lord, Lord, but find out that he actually doesn't know them. You can see why this is important for the Corinthians. They certainly claim to be followers of Christ, but they were embracing a false gospel and false teachers. There was hope that they had turned from their folly and rejected these super apostles, but, but some were still tempted. In Paul's mind, there is still a question that needs to be pursued here. Where do you stand with respect to the true gospel of Christ crucified in weakness and raised in power? Corinthians, Sterling Park Baptist Church, do you embrace the message of the cross? Do you embrace that way of life with weakness and shame that gives way to glory? Or are you going to follow some other message, some other leader, some other apostle, some other wisdom and apparent power? For us, in our context, the question's probably not super apostles. The question is, will we embrace the gospel message by faith? Are, are we in Northern Virginia with all of our accomplishments and wealth and power and access, are we willing to really embrace a message that says you can't save yourself, that you're not good enough, that you're the problem, not the solution? Will we embrace, embrace a message of salvation, not through anything that we can do or merit or earn, but a salvation that is offered to us purely through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The question for us is, will we pick up the cross of suffering? Are we willing to commit the highest treason that you can commit in our society? To be disloyal to ourselves. To deny ourselves. To dare to be something less and other than our true, authentic selves. To actually as Jesus put it, crucify ourselves. Pick up our cross. Say no to our desires. Say no to our aspirations and impulses and ambitions and follow after a crucified Savior. Or will we just play games with repentance? Will we pay lip service to Jesus, all the while pursuing some other agenda that he wouldn't recognize as his own? Friends, just saying that you're a Christian doesn't mean all that much at the end of the day. And so Paul tells us, examine yourselves. 
Examine your life. Examine your thoughts, your attitudes. Examine what you love. Examine your priorities. Examine your ambitions. Now, Paul has hope for the church. He's actually not being negative and pessimistic here. He expects there in chapter 13 that they will, in fact, pass the test by God's grace. And so we shouldn't be anxious or fearful. But if you claim to be a follower of Christ, it is wise to stop and to look, to see if your perception of yourself, if what you say about yourself actually matches up with reality. How do you do that? Well, there's a lot we could say, but actually the test Paul gives us here is fairly simple. He says there in verse 5, Do you not realize, can you not see, is there no evidence? Don't you realize, he says, that Christ is in you? In a sense, that's the only question you need to to answer. As Paul says there, if the answer is no, then you've failed the test. And so how can we tell? How do I know if Christ is in me? It sounds like a daunting question, but again, it's not too hard. Paul gives us a roadmap here in 2 Corinthians. This, again, is the point of the letter. If Christ is in you, well, you'll see something of his life being formed in you. You will hate your sin, as Paul says at the end of verse 12, right? He hopes to find the church not sort of descended into sin and rancor and immorality, but repentant, right? You will long for righteousness, right? That's what Paul wants to see built up in the church, right? Peace, love for one another, right? You You will hear the commands that Paul gives to the church here, the commands to rejoice, to live in peace, to comfort one another. And however imperfectly, you will begin to see that forming in your life. You'll be dissatisfied for for the ways you see its absence in your life, but you'll hopefully also be able to say, look, I I do have a longing for this. This is what I want. I, I see the life of Christ being formed in me. I don't love my brothers and sisters perfectly. I'm not, I'm not as... Uh, diligent in in repenting of sin and turning away from it as I should be, but but by God's grace, it's true. I am heading in that direction. You'll hear the call to put away immorality and jealousy and anger, and you'll see those things being increasingly choked out in your life, and you'll mourn their ongoing manifestation and presence in your life. You see, if Christ is in you, if you've embraced the message of Christ crucified and raised from the dead, right, if you have put your faith in him, then you will be moved to love and to worship the Lord Jesus in his death and resurrection. That's what Christ forms in his people when he's present in their midst. That's that's how we can ask as a church, is Christ in us? Do we delight in him? Do Do we rejoice in his way, the way of the cross that only later leads to glory? Or are we addicted to the moment? Are we addicted to getting what we want now? Do we have to have sort of manifestations of earthly wealth and power? Do we hate our sin? Do we mourn its presence? Do we long to see Christ's character filled in us more and more? That's what Paul wants for the church at Corinth. That's what he wants for us. That's the response he's aiming to generate. Of course, that's the point of the Lord's Supper in many ways as well. Here at the Lord's table, we as a church and as individuals remember Jesus crucified in weakness. We come and we 
We take his, his broken body in the bread, his shed blood in the cup. But we come to a Savior who's not dead anymore. We come to a Savior who's been risen in power, been raised in power. And so he can meet with us at his table. He can be present in us. He can cause us to delight in him. It's at the table that we live out and we prove the presence of the Lord Jesus in our lives as individuals and as a congregation. Brothers and sisters, we need to examine ourselves. But the point isn't to see yourself more clearly. The point is to see Christ. And so let's come, come to the table, hating our sin, yes, but rejoicing also in what he's done for us and what he's done in us. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we rejoice in the love that you have shown to us. You have proven your love over and over again in all of the ways you have provided for our needs. But most clearly, most shockingly, in the gift of your son. As we read in the Bible, if, if you've not withheld the Lord Jesus from us, but if you've given him up freely to us, what... What is exactly are you going to be unwilling to give us? And so, Father, we are convinced of your great love. And Jesus, we delight in the grace that we find when we come to you. Grace that's greater than our sin. Grace that we can't merit, can't deserve. Grace won for us at the cross in your shame and suffering and humiliation. And Holy Spirit, we delight that you have united us to Christ, that we can have fellowship with you, that your presence in us is Christ dwelling in us. Spirit, would you continue your good work? Would you help us to examine ourselves as individuals and as a congregation? Would you show us Christ in us? Would you help us to hate our sin, to delight in him more? We pray that you would do all of these things in our midst for our joy and for the glory of the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.